Sass Backwards is sponsored by Austin Lawrence Group, specializing in demand gen for SaaS. It sure is noisy. I deleted 100 emails from vendors just this morning. Your buyer has gotten better at ignoring you, and you're going to need a big idea if you want to cut through all that clutter. Austin Lawrence is just the right agency to help you find it. So if your campaigns are falling on deaf eyeballs, let's talk. Visit austinlawrence.com today and let's build something bigger. Welcome to the SaaS Backwards Podcast, where we reverse engineer the success of fast-growing SaaS firms and explore strategies CMOs and CEOs are using to drive their businesses forward. Welcome to SaaS Backwards, a podcast that helps SaaS CEOs and CMOs to accelerate growth and enhance profitability. Our guest today is, well, me, and I'll be joined by Jason Myers, Austin Lawrence Group's Chief Revenue Officer, for what we hope is going to be a lively and informative conversation about demand generation and driving opportunity for SaaS firms here in the back half of 2023 and into 2024. We're actually going to flip the script, as it were, and have Jason drive the conversation with me in the role of guest. Hey, Jason, welcome to the host chair and the podcast. Thanks. I'm excited to be here today. And I know you've already mentioned demand generation, which is the first question that I'd like to start with because demand generation has become quite the buzzword. And I'd like you to define it or how we define it for the audience. Well, that's a great topic, obviously. And there's lots of terms of art that are misused. And I think this is one of the ones that is most subject to being mischaracterized. So I think there's two kinds of things we do in marketing that affect revenue directly and somewhat indirectly. One of them is what happens in the short term. And the other is the things that take some time to percolate. So lead generation or demand capture is what happens in the here and now when people are looking for a solution, they're ready to buy, they're in market. And that tends to be where a lot of us in revenue generation tend to focus. It's the easiest thing to see. The activity is more obvious, whether it's directly on our website through intent signals that we buy or make on our own websites. But the demand generation is really where the other 97% of opportunity lives. So for those customers and prospects in your total addressable market who are not in a buying motion, that's where demand generation plays. It's actually the biggest part of the pie. And what we need to do is create relationships with those people so that when they become problem aware, or if they're problem aware, make them solution aware, they might look upon us as part of the solution, if not the solution. So from the way we operate, demand generation is those folks not in market yet who we might be able to motivate to get in market through what the folks who promulgate the challenger sale and challenger customer would call commercial teaching. Let's get out there, introduce new problems and make people problem aware if they're not, not really introduce new problems, but you know, let's get people to recognize that there's a problem in their business and there might be a better way to go about running their business with a solution that we could offer. Yeah, I think what we're calling demand generation today is really marketing made up of the four P's, right? People don't know what the four P's are. It's product, price, place, and promotion. And all of those things still apply. And I think some of them get lost. I think we all look at the promotion, especially in the SaaS world. 
but talk a little bit about how demand generation really should just be marketing and then the separation between customer creation and demand capture. Sure. So I like to think of it as big M marketing versus little M marketing. So little M marketing is the stuff we do today to get people to hit the schedule a demo button. The big M marketing is going to be how do we get people to become part of our world? So product means understanding the problem well enough to build a product that people might want to buy and use. Pricing is really important to create a profitable enterprise. You need pricing that's attractive and yet yields a margin. Promotion, that's the thing everybody's most familiar with. And in fact, you know, you hear many marketing leaders complain that we're all about the promotion, right? It's the ING in marketing, as Latney Conant might like to say. We don't just make content. We don't just make ads. We actually control a market place. Where do we do that? How do we do it? How do we become relevant in people's lives? So I think the four Ps, marketing with a big M, strategy, is the most important thing we can do as marketing leaders. It's the place where we influence the outcome most directly. For marketing leaders that don't have control of those four things, it's like fighting with one hand tied behind your back. You know, you need to control, manage, and strategize those things, gain buy-in from your peers on your plans, and get the budgets you need so that you can affect those plans. The large M marketing, big M marketing is what it's all about, really. So I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball because it occurs to me that people in the audience probably don't know much about your background. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about your background with this agency and the different types of clients that we've had through the years and tee it up for a return to creativity. Fair enough. I've been doing this longer than I want to admit to. I started in the agency business when this business was run and owned by my dad. And I came from a technology development and sales background. I had worked for IBM and then Citicorp in a variety of roles, building and helping sell technology products and services. The history of the agency is that it's always been about B2B. So for 34 years, I've been helping drive opportunity for B2B companies, primarily in the technology sector, although there's also some professional services background in there. Much of that has been helping software entrepreneurs, founders, and CEOs to drive their companies toward a specific objective. So they have a goal in mind or a problem they need to solve. Those are the two reasons people come to an agency. Either your sales aren't growing at the rate you'd like them to, your profitability isn't what you need it to be, or you have the desire to drive toward a liquidity event of some kind. So you're either seeking to become acquired or go public or to be the acquirer, to be the consolidator in a space. And we have a lot of experience with helping CEOs and founders to drive to those liquidity events. I think the running total is a little bit more than $2 billion in exits and IPOs in our customer base in the last 20 or so years many of which I've had personal involvement with doing strategy with the leadership teams. So I want you to talk about the inbound of the firm, how we grasp it onto content inbound, how that's still a thing, but how that's evolved into more a return to creativity. So the latest iteration of Austin Lawrence goes back about 10 years now when we started working with HubSpot. And I had a goal that I wanted all of our marketing to be very accountable. We'd had some not so great experience with CFOs where we would help a client achieve whatever goals they were looking to get to. And then we'd end up in a meeting with the CFO where they'd say, hey, thanks a lot for helping us go public. But now because we're under such scrutiny, we need to have your budget. 
So Austin Lawrence in 2013 recharacterized itself as an inbound marketing agency. And we kind of drank the Kool-Aid on the fact that if you can search it, you'll be able to generate opportunity. And I think for a while that worked pretty well. Inbound marketing content based lead generation was pretty effective probably for five or six years. And then things started to tail off in effectiveness, still valuable, but not quite as novel or effective as it had been. And over the last few years, what we've seen is that it's become really hard to compete for attention in the public square for most companies. And when I say compete for attention, I mean, use search engine optimization to drive willing prospects to our content assets that we gate and we make them give up their credential in order to read. That game is getting harder and harder to play and it parallels the decline in return on outbound sales. So the sort of inbound lead generation and outbound sales are sort of getting harder and harder at the same time. So there's got to be an answer, right? We have an economy that's still growing. Software companies are still selling. So what are the successful software companies doing? They're doing more creative. They're being more innovative in the way they clamor for attention. We had a couple of recent podcast guests that have, in no uncertain terms, elaborated the value of creativity. And the one who you know most comes to mind for me is Melissa Rosenthal of ClickUp. What they've done is basically harness a little bit of an upstart mentality and a bit of risk-taking to become highly relevant and enjoyable to follow as a company. So they have a software company that people want to hear from. They look for their content on LinkedIn and other places because it's enjoyable to consume. It's creative. It's interesting. They stir the pot a little bit. They call out their competitors. And I think that's what's really needed. I actually published a blog post in the last few weeks that planted a flag for Austin Lawrence. We used to be a very creative driven agency. My partner for 20 years, John Manning, was a pretty well-established creative director in a major agency at Jordan McGrath Case and Taylor. And his next job was with us. And John really led for 20 years creative campaigns that helped build difference for our clients and drive revenue. And we sort of looked away from that when we drank the HubSpot Kool-Aid. And I think the pendulum has well and truly swung to the point where content is going to be harder and harder to monetize, especially with generative AI like OpenAI's ChatGPT. Everybody's going to become a content writer. Every single person with a laptop is going to be a blogger. Every single person with a laptop is going to be able to write sales sequences. So these things are going to proliferate and they're going to get worse and worse. Not unlike the way everybody thought they were a creative director and designer when desktop publishing came around. I think it's going to be even worse with generative AI because as more and more of the content that's available on the open web is generated by these tools, the content that seeds the machine is going to get worse and worse. So we need to find a way to counteract that. And I think it's going to be creative. It's going to be great advertising and it's going to be great interrupts in the form of video content that we distribute on other platforms that people we'd like to influence congregate like LinkedIn or the meta social platforms. I think that's the answer to what I call ruminative AI is going to be being creative. If we're not creative, we're going to suffer the consequences. I think that's really my message. So as you like to say, there's a lot to unpack there. And let's start first with Melissa Rosenthal, because I think what's interesting about ClickUp is in the two and a half year tenure that she's been there, they've gone from 60 employees to over a thousand. 
I mean, the growth is just phenomenal. And you may disagree with me, but in my opinion, I don't think you can get the same results by hammering on an outbound sales cadence the way that we used to be able to. You have to have a marketing component. And not only that, it's got to differentiate and cut through the noise. What do you think about that? I totally agree with you, but I want to make sure we dig in, sort of peel it back a little bit. First of all, ClickUp competes in a terribly competitive category. Project task management, that kind of ticketing, there's hundreds of solutions for that. So how do you come basically out of nowhere to become a dominant player in a category that's so competitive? Well, we have big M marketing that can take credit. So the product is good. The promotion is very good. They're doing the promotion where they should and how they should. And with a PLG motion, they've got the price thing knocked as well. So they've got their four Ps really in order. And again, people follow this company. They engage with its creative because it's fun and interesting and different. And I think Big M Marketing is to blame for their success. They've just done a great job in every way, positioning themselves to grow at the expense of their competitors. I mean, it's not a growing category. It's a tough category. So I think it's all about marketing in the larger sense, not just I have advertising money and I spend it. I think it's across the board. Which leads me to one of my favorite topics right now, which is positioning. And if you haven't read the classic book, Positioning the Battle for Your Mind by Rees and Trout, I highly recommend that book. But why is it important to get positioning and messaging right from the get-go? By the way, those guys were Connecticut products. So we're locally very proud of Al Rees and Jack Trout. And the book is still worth a read. And it doesn't take very long. It's a very compact book. Read it in a day or so. I fail to understand why businesses don't invest in customer insight. It's one of those things that you scratch your head when a friend of yours does something stupid. They were told not to do it. They were told as they were doing it, it wasn't so great. And afterwards, they still don't understand how they got there. And I just can't tell you how many software companies I've encountered where people operate on their assumptions. They think they know better because some years ago they had a good product idea that met a need at the time, and they continue to go on the because I say so method of marketing. And I just think it's remarkably dangerous to lose touch with the people who might buy your products. So messaging work is about having this deep insight into what makes your potential customers and your current customers tick. Like, what do they care about? What are their concerns today? How are those concerns different than when the company was founded three, five, or 10 years ago? They're definitely going to be different. The way we approach messaging is pretty straightforward. We're not the only people that do it this way, but I think we do a great job. We interview the software companies, client executives, the subject matter experts, the people on the front line in sales and customer success. We want to understand what the self-perception is. And then we do that same kind of interview process with a healthy number of active users and even customers we may have lost or not won in the sales process. And we can learn from them what their experience of the purchase was, the use of the software, and how they relate in terms of the problem they experienced and the search they went on for a solution? How did they become problem aware? How did they become solution aware? What has their experience been? That's the stuff of great marketing is to know your customers well enough so that your communication speaks to them at a really foundational innate level. And it's not enough just to have those insights. I don't know how many folks who are listening have had the opportunity to speak with a deep market researcher, but those are some pretty dry conversations. 
I mean, we have to take customer insights. Again, the people that do insight generation are often market researchers. These are very dry conversations, but we have to take those insights and turn them into something. So we have to kind of spin gold out of the insight. And that's the work of an experienced marketer who can take the input from 15 or 20 or more interviews and their context and successful experience driving growth for other companies and build the campaigns and creative platforms that are going to be meaningful and resonate with potential clients. The whole thing starts there. If we don't have great insight and we can't monetize it through great creative and distribution of that great idea, then we're just going to do average results. It all starts with insight. Well, and you and I have reviewed hundreds of websites looking with that angle in mind. What do you think is the most common mistakes that today's SaaS companies are making on their websites and their messaging and their content? Well, if your homepage hero isn't speaking to a pain point, you have to start asking why not. Too often, these companies that we prospect, candidly, are talking about themselves too much. So it's speeds and feeds, as we used to say in sales. So they're talking about what their product does, not why you might want to use it. And not everyone who's listening is going to be a big Simon Sinek fan, but I think it's worth asking yourself, why would somebody care? If you're an orthopedic surgeon, the reason people would care about your service is because they'd like to get back to doing what they can't any longer do. And I think if you're a software vendor, you have to be solving a problem that drives a result that people are hoping to achieve. So I think you have to look at the results that people are trying to achieve, not you know how many reports your piece of analytical software generates. Right? The value of analytical software is to help us make better decisions to achieve some outcome. It's not, hey, we have 27 dashboards, each with 12 reports. So if you look at your own web presence and it's talking about your stuff, that's probably a place to start. Which leads to another one of our favorite books, which is The Challenger Customer or The Challenger Sale, which seems to me to be a little bit of an updating on the positioning conversation, but like specifically applied to B2B companies with complex sales that are using content for thought leadership and what that ultimately needs to do to lead to motivating a prospect off a of status quo. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on how that book has changed our approach when we work with clients. Well, I was wondering when you were going to use that dirty word, thought leadership. Hey, I think thought leadership is, you know, it's the coin of the realm in a lot of ways. I like to say that we're not inventing new kinds of media in content marketing and in using engagement as well as content to drive interest in a prospect. So thought leadership is the way that we accomplish what Matthew Dixon and Brent Adamson would call commercial teaching, as you called it. Essentially, what we want to do is lead people to an understanding of a business problem that they may not be aware of or they may not understand the root causes of a business problem that they're experiencing. A lot of times when we meet prospective clients, there are symptoms of a problem that need to be solved. A great example is we have a lot of churn in our customer base. Another one is the average value of our sales is going down. So in the challenger customer, these guys talk about how do we help people to understand that they have a problem in a different way from the way they experience it or assume that it comes about and then provide insights that lead to our solution or our category of solutions and make us a trusted expert such that when the prospect becomes ready to look for solutions, they're going to look to us. 
And this is the real proposition of demand generation and thought leadership, right? This is like the hump we have to get our CEO, CFO, and head of sales colleagues over is that, hey, if the numbers keep getting worse on lead generation, demand capture, if it gets harder and harder to compete there, how are we going to compete? And the way we're going to do that is by building relationships. So this challenger customer notion is not like, hey, we're trying to make it difficult for our potential customers. We're not challenging them to a duel or something. What we're trying to do is bring them over to our way of thinking so that they can buy from us. And that's building relationship, building trust. And how do we do that? Through thought leadership. I think it's a good time also to call out annual research by LinkedIn and Edelman PR Worldwide. They do great research. You can Google it on the value of thought leadership. And the fact is that CEOs and others in the C-suite consistently report that they buy more at a higher price from the vendors who they believe are demonstrating industry leadership through how they publish content. So the thought leadership content has a direct impact on the value of your relationships with your potential and current customers. And I think every CMO should have that report and distribute it to their colleagues and, and their boss because there's no better justification for investing in the intermediate and long-term than that kind of research. You'll experience it too on your own, but if you have to get the buy-in from management that a change is necessary, I think somewhere between the challenger customer and the Edelman LinkedIn research, you'll have the ammunition you need to generate the buy-in on demand generation. And how are you defining thought leadership content? So to me, thought leadership is not about my product. It's about your problem. So it's content that illuminates a business issue in a new way that people may not have full appreciation of so that it creates some aha moments. The best measure of thought leadership content is somebody connecting with a subject matter expert at a software company on LinkedIn and saying, hey, I read your white paper on XYZ, and I'd really love to have half an hour with you to dig in on that. That's what it should be doing. It's also content that gives our salespeople permission to reach senior executives. So I'd love to have it be inbound. I think that's a really important measure and justification and what it is. But I think it's also content that's good enough that it edifies prospects and they're thankful to the BDR team that uses it and reaches out with it. Imagine that. Here's a challenge that I think listeners should take. Build content that creates thanks among your prospects. Imagine content and engagement experiences that are good enough that your prospects thank a BDR for reaching out. If you've built that, you're doing thought leadership. You know, a favorite example of that right now, I think, is the trust radius report, right? Like the buyer-seller disconnect. Yeah, that's amazing research. We refer to it and use it here. The trust radius research is also an annual study they do on what's motivating buyers of technology products and services to make their decisions. And that's a changing landscape. But the value of that research is enormous to marketers who are trying to understand what's motivating their prospects to make a decision right now. The 2023 report, and I think we have a recent podcast with Allison Havner, the VP of Marketing at Trust Radius. Great episode. It's only about eight or 10 episodes ago. One of the big insights is that there's likely to be consolidation among software solutions out in prospect land. And pricing is going to be driving a lot of that with our clients and prospects. So either we have to expand the footprint of our product, or we have to be more competitive on price going forward because our clients and prospects are going to be spending less. 
And that kind of thought leadership gives the trust radius team a lot of authority when they reach out to a vendor and say, hey, we'd like to have you use our platform to develop social proof through the unbiased user reviews. I'd be a lot happier being their salesperson than a salesperson maybe from another review site that doesn't have that kind of highly valuable insight to share. It's a conversation starter for sure. So I think we've covered a lot of ground. I'd like to wrap it up with a short discussion on our website messaging content and conversion review and how and why companies should engage with that if they're having difficulties. So we offer a complimentary service to qualified software as a service companies, and that's our website content messaging and conversion review. It's a, about a 20-page report that's ultimately generated, takes a look at how your messaging is being presented, looks at the offers you're making, how you're presenting them, what the likelihood is that they'll convert, and suggests things you can do in the short term to improve the return on the traffic you're generating. We've had remarkably good feedback on these reports. And again, it's a free, no obligation service. And we'd be happy to offer that again to any qualified software as a service company to help you better understand what you're doing on your website, what that experience is probably like for your site visitors, and how you can improve the return on the traffic you're generating. Great. And if people want to get a hold of you, Ken, how do they do that? Well, my email is kl at austinlawrence.com. That's A-U-S-T-I-N-L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E.com. I'm on LinkedIn slash in slash Ken Lempit. And I think it's also worth giving you a shout out. Jason's at jm at austinlawrence.com. And what's your LinkedIn handle? It is content hyphen maven. Content hyphen maven. There you go. So Thanks so much for listening to our first self-podcast on SaaS Backwards. I hope you found value in it. And if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please do so wherever podcasts are distributed. Jason, thanks so much. You're welcome. Look forward to the next one. Thanks for listening to the SaaS Backwards podcast, brought to you by Austin Lawrence Group. We're a growth marketing agency that helps SaaS firms reduce churn, accelerate sales, and generate demand. Learn more about us at www.austinlawrence.com. You can email Ken Lempet at kl at austinlawrence.com about any SaaS marketing or customer retention subject. We hope you'll subscribe and thanks again for listening.